Uh, when I was growing up, my parents had two very different ways of dealing with tradespeople who let them down. Uh, my dad, my dad was the master of writing letters. Uh, he would write short letters. Uh, he would write cutting letters that were so dry that, uh, well, to be honest, they were quite humorous. Uh, and they generally had a fairly good result. But if you wanted a quick and decisive result, uh, then you went to my mum. Uh, my mum, she didn't do letters. She did telephones. Uh, and where most people uh, get frustrated, standing in, uh, waiting in those, those long kind of telephone answering, uh, you know where they play that jingle music down the phone at you? Uh, and, it, and it's just, uh, I hate it. Well, for my mum, that was brilliant because it, it just kind of built up her anger to the level uh, that, that, that when the, the poor unsuspecting uh, call center worker would answer uh, the phone, uh, well, then she would be able to unleash with all the wrath that had been stored up uh, from listening to that horrible jingle jangle music for ages. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. I mean, we, we got all sorts of free things from companies uh, because she was able to persuade them that not only had they sent the wrong colored item to us, uh, but also that she had been waiting uh, in a telephone line for however long it was. Uh, but I remember as a, as a child, I remember watching my mum and... and and my mum, she, she's the most gentle and uh, a lovely woman. Uh, and yet something happened uh, when she was on the phone to these people uh, where this kind of anger would come out. Uh, and I, it, it was a little embarrassing, actually, seeing that happening. Now, I say that because I wonder, I wonder whether when it comes to John 2... Uh, when we look on uh, and we see Jesus uh, kind of red-faced uh, and shouting, uh, when we see him making a whip uh, and, uh, and causing people pain, uh, when we see him destroying businesses by turning over uh, desks and tables, isn't there a bit of us that thinks, that's a little bit awkward? I mean, I'd never say it out loud, but, but I don't quite know what to do with Jesus in this passage. He doesn't seem like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He doesn't seem like the one who's there, who's healing the sick. No, no he's causing pain. He doesn't seem to be forgiving sinners. He seems to be, well, yelling at them. What is going on? Of course, we don't say we're embarrassed of Jesus, but, but what we do is, is we take passages like this and, and we use them when we're when we're kind of joking a little bit, don't we? You know when there's the church fete or, or, or the youth are uh, selling buns at the back uh, and you say, oh, you know, I hope nobody's got one of those WWJD bands. What would Jesus do bands on? <laughs> that would be awkward, wouldn't it? And yet for Jesus, this is, this is no laughing matter. You see, what's going on in John chapter 2 strikes right at the heart of Jesus' purpose. It's not a laughing matter for Jesus. It's certainly not a laughing matter uh, for those Jews who are looking on either. You see, for them, what Jesus has done is it's outrageous. How dare he do something like that, especially in the temple? Who is this guy to walk in here and tell us what we should do with this building? Did you see their reaction to him? It's there, actually, in, in verse 18. Uh, the Jews, then the Jews, demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? 
at the Jews. Uh, they look at Jesus and they say, if you're going to do this, you need a mandate. We've heard a lot about mandates this week, haven't we? Uh, but you need a mandate from God. That's how serious it is. You mess with the temple, you need, you need to show us some sort of miraculous sign uh, to show that God himself is telling you to do this. They're angry. Uh, why is it that Jesus is so angry? Uh, why is it that there's such an extreme reaction from the Jews? Uh, and what on earth did Jesus mean by his answer? They demand a sign, verse 18. Uh, and verse 19, Jesus answers them, Well, destroy this temple... And I will raise it again in three days. It's perplexing. It's confusing. What do we do with a passage like this? Uh, well, to understand what's going on, what we need to do is we need to get a bit of an idea about what this temple is, uh, what it means, uh, and where it's come from. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to scoot through about well, we're going to scoot through the entire Old Testament in about five minutes, okay? Uh, so you're going to need to kind of buckle your seatbelts. Uh, that outline will be really helpful. Uh, and we're going to go right back to the beginning, okay? So we're right back at the beginning uh, of the Bible. And there you've got a garden, the Garden of Eden, okay? Uh, and here God has declared the world that he's made to be very good. This is the pinnacle of creation. It's literally the pinnacle, actually. We're told elsewhere it's referred to as Mount Eden. Rivers flow down from it, out of it. And here on the mountain, we have God walking in the cool of the day with his people. We've got God and mankind dwelling together. Just imagine it for a second. There you are, you're walking through a beautiful forest garden. And you hear some footsteps, and you think, oh, that's just God walking with me. It's amazing. But it wasn't to last, was it? Because, well, we know what happened. Mankind, uh, we lusted after being God. We tried to take his role. And as a result, we were cast down from Eden, uh, cast out. And the whole of the rest of the history of mankind is us uh, wanting to be back with God, wanting to dwell once more with God. So let's wind the clock forward a bit. God saves for himself a people. Uh, he saves them out of Egypt. Uh, and, uh, and he says, I want you to build me a tent. Uh, I want you to build me a tent called a tabernacle where I will dwell amongst my people. And at the heart of the tabernacle, there is this kind of uh, cuboid inner tent. Uh, and there God uh, would be in his very special presence uh, in the middle of his people. And you see, once more, God dwelt among his people. Uh, only it was slightly removed. Uh, he didn't walk with them in the cool of the day. No, uh, only once a year could one person come into that special cuboid inner tent. He was there. Uh, but he was slightly distant. But once more, he was at the heart of his people. Uh, wind the clock forward a few years later. God gives those people uh, a land of their own. Uh, and on that land, uh, on a hill there, there is a city called Jerusalem. Uh, and there, uh, King Solomon, he builds a, a stone version of that tabernacle uh, called the temple. Uh, and it's marvelous. It's amazing. It's golden. People come to see it. It's great. And at the heart of that building was another cube, a special place where God would dwell. Now right at the heart of his nation's capital. And there people would come and they would offer sacrifices. And there once a year one man would come in and he would stand in the very presence of God. 
It was the high point of Israelite history. But again, it wasn't to last. Because although God's people had God at the center, at the heart of their capital, what did they do? They ran off after other gods again and again. And God warned them. He said, don't do that. Don't do that. You will lose this city. You'll lose this temple. In fact, one of the saddest uh, chapters, I think, in the whole Bible uh, is there in Ezekiel chapter 10, where the prophet gets this vision of the glory of God standing up and leaving the temple. He stands up, he leaves. And sure enough, because God's people, they rebel against him, they, they, they run up after other gods. Uh, God sends nation after nation to destroy Jerusalem, to take God's people, to carry them off into exile. And the temple, the temple's destroyed. God dwelling amongst his people, well, that building is gone. His glory is upped and gone. And yet even there, God promises, look, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to still be your refuge. I'm going to cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt, the temple to be rebuilt. Uh, And sure enough, uh, a guy called uh, Cyrus the Great, uh, a Persian king, uh, he wasn't a believer, but he he paid for God's people to go back to Jerusalem. He even paid for a new temple to be built. Uh, And there we see that that amazing promise that we recited at the start of this service, uh, that the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the first And yet when it's built, well, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, You see, as it's built, uh, people who saw both temples, uh, they wept because it wasn't as glorious. It wasn't as golden. It wasn't as big as the first. And yet once more, the temple was there in Jerusalem. Uh, And that's where the Old Testament ends. Uh, We know from the history books between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the Greeks, they come and invade. uh, They take over God's people. uh, They take over the temple. They're they're not too keen uh, on the worship of God there. uh, And so they set up their own idols. We're even told that they, uh, that they, they, they kill animals to their idols, animals, unclean animals. Sure enough, uh, the, in the history books, they, they tell us that the Jews, uh, they, 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 they rise up a, a revolt uh, and take back the temple by military force. Uh, they take it back, uh, they reuse it as a temple, they rededicate it, uh, and then uh, the Greeks and the Jews, they're both taken over by the Romans. See all the history of this building? Uh, and when the Romans take over, uh, well, they're, they're actually quite good to the Jews. They pay for the temple to get a bit of an extension. Uh, And so what you've got now at the start of John 2 uh, is you've got Temple 2.1, if you like. It's been uh, created. It's been destroyed. uh, It's been rebuilt. It's been extended. This is a building that has gone through more drama than an episode of EastEnders. I mean, it's it's crazy. Uh, And so you can understand why the Jews, uh, as they they look at this building, uh, they've got a deep, a deep cultural connection to this building. They long for it to to be used. They long to keep it. It's the best it's looked in ages. And so if people come and they come from non-agricultural backgrounds, well, uh, well surely we should sell them some sort of uh, animal to, 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 to sacrifice so they can be a part of what's going on here in this building. Uh, and we might as well do it in the temple. I mean, the building's got to be used, hasn't it? So, so, so it makes sense to, to sell them sacrifices here. 
And if people come from other nations to see our temple, well, uh, well great. Let's, uh, let's get a bit of a bureau de change going on. Uh, let's, you know, let's, let's make things work nicely for them. You can see their logic, can't you? And yet in all their devotion to this temple, what they've gone and done is they've gone and lost the main point. You see, as Jesus walks into the temple, uh, he doesn't say, oh, wow, look at the temple. Uh, No, he says, verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. And so, uh, as Jesus walks into the temple, he says, you've made it into a market. Uh, In fact, there's an even bigger irony here, isn't there? Uh, Because here you've got Jesus, uh, God, walking among us. Uh, John 1 refers to him tabernacling among us, making his tent and dwelling among us. God dwelling among us. Uh, God once more walks into his temple. uh, And what happens? The Jews look at him and say, how dare you tell us what should go on here? In their devotion to the temple, they've missed the one who it's all about, haven't they? And herein, I think, is a challenge for us today. You see, we're part, aren't we, of of a church of England, a church that is a historic church, that longs to be culturally relevant. And in so doing, well, we get very touchy about those areas of God's word that that challenge our culture, don't we? And so the temptation is to be so devoted to being culturally relevant that we forget about the one for whom the church exists. In fact, we don't just do it kind of nationally or on an institutional level. We do it individually, don't we? We can miss the point as well. In fact, we can miss the point when we're doing the very best of Christian things. You know, as we open up our Bible day by day, of a morning. It's a great thing to do. But if somebody asks us why we're doing it, if we answer, well, I'm doing it so I get to know my Bible better. Well, have we missed the point there? Or if somebody says, why are you at church today? And you say, well, I'm here so that, well, I'm equipped to live a Christian life. Again, have we missed the point? Now, now don't get me wrong, being culturally relevant is a good thing. Reading your Bible and getting to know it better is a a lovely and a wonderful thing. Um, Being encouraged to live a Christian life, uh, that's a great thing. But if that's our end game, if that's the goal of what we're doing, uh, then we've missed the point. Because we're not coming to Christ. That's got to be the goal, hasn't it? If the goal of our lives is, is union with Christ, then surely the goal of our reading of our Bible or of our church meetings has got to be that we come to, to know Christ better, to delight in Him more. A 19th century preacher in, actually down near Elephant and Castle, a guy called Charles Spurgeon, once said this, of, of any and all religious acts whose end game isn't Christ. He said this, uh, they are a brook without water, a, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead, plucked up by the root, a, a sky without sun, a night without a star. If, if it were a realm of death, it would be a place of mourning for angels and laughter for devils. 
oh Christian, we must have Christ. Do you see to it that every day when you wake, you give a fresh savor of Christ upon you by contemplating his person. Live all the day trying as much as lieth in you to season your hearts with him. Then at night, lie down with him upon your tongue. See, it's, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. In fact, isn't that what Jesus means when he answers uh, the, Pharise- uh, the, the Jews? They demand a sign, and he says, uh, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Uh, the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed, then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Uh, what's Jesus saying? He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's saying, he walks into the temple and he says, Look, I am the temple. I am the meeting point of, of God and man, the place where man and God will dwell together. And if you want to see that most clearly, look forward to those three days, the ones that we remembered last week at Easter. Look forward to the events of Easter. For there you will see uh, once more uh, upon a hill, on the Mount of Crucifixion, you see this temple being crucified. Uh, Why was Christ being crucified? Not for his own sin. That That would be preposterous. He had none. No, he was being crucified there for your sin, for my sin. You see, the wonderful thing at the heart of the Christian message is that you and I are united to Christ. Uh, So that all my lusting after God's place, uh, all my treating this world as if I'm God, uh, all the punishment that I deserve for that is paid as Christ dies on the cross. You see, as he dies on the cross, he dies the death that I deserve. And spiritually, as he dies on the cross, I have died on the cross because I'm united to him. And in the same way, spiritually, as he is raised to life again, so you and I are raised to life again. You see, that is the place where God and man dwell together. That is the place where peace is given between God and man. See, spiritually speaking, we are united to Christ. We're with him, even now. As he ascended to be with the Father. Uh, The crazy thing is that spiritually speaking, we are united. We are with him now, hidden in Christ. Yes, yes, one day my physical body, your physical body will die uh, and be raised. But but that's just our bodies catching up with what's already happened, spiritually speaking. If you're a Christian, you've died and been raised to life. Uh, We're united to Christ. It's it's wonderful news. Uh, And yet, some of us, uh, even as I say that, we're thinking... That's great, but, but, but Christ ascended back up to heaven. You know, I get that I'm united to him. I get that spiritually speaking, uh, that, that God and man dwell together. That, that's wonderful, but, but it kind of doesn't feel like that right now. It kind of feels like he's up there and I'm here. We don't have a, a physical temple to go to anymore. Uh, that's been made redundant. About 70 years after this, uh, it gets destroyed. 
So we don't have a physical temple to go to, uh, but, 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 but if, if Christ is my temple, he's, he's miles away. He, he's with the Father. Uh, and yet, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we see that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, yes, we're united to Christ, but as we're united to him, his spirit comes and lives in us. That's why as you read your New Testament, it talks about us being temples of the Holy Spirit. It's why it matters what we do with our bodies, because God, by his Spirit, is living in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are, uh, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but more than that, the, the church is described a bit like a temple. Uh, together, we are, uh, together, we are people who are making up the body of Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 2 talks of us being built into, uh, into a holy temple, a place where God dwells with man. Incidentally, that's why it should be that uh, as people who don't know Jesus come to this building uh, and come to see uh, the relationships between us, they see something of Christ. They should see that. It's why it's a brilliant evangelistic strategy to get your non-Christian mates to meet your Christian mates because they see something of Christ. A meeting point of, uh, of God and man. And yet there's, there's more. Oh, there's so, so much more. Because yes, uh, my, uh, we are dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. We are uh, temples. Uh, yes, together as a church we're a temple. Uh, but one day, the whole of creation will reflect, uh, will reflect God dwelling with man. Uh, we saw it in our second reading. Just, just flip there for, with me. For a moment, just to uh, Revelation 21, and we're just going to pick up a few, uh, a few things, and it's good, it's really good. See if you see any echoes from where we've been looking so far in the in the Old Testament, the temple, uh, and just look with me at, at verse 10. And he, that's an angel, carried me, that's one of Jesus' followers, John, uh, away in the spirit to a mountain. Hello, another mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, another Jerusalem, the, the, the place of the temple, the capital city. Coming down out of heaven from God, it shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Jump down to verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. As wide and as high as it is long. This, this city is another perfect cube. Uh, another holy of holies, another place where the very special presence of God was, on another mountain in another Jerusalem. See, this is where God is going to dwell, and it's the very city where his people dwell. But it gets even cooler than that. Uh, look down with me uh, uh, over at uh, verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Uh, we're told there isn't a city, uh, sorry, there isn't a temple, because, because the whole city is a temple. How? Because God dwells there. 
You see, if, if the history of the temple has been about God dwelling amongst his people, if anything, this is the other way around, isn't it? This is his people dwelling amongst God. And, and if in Ezekiel 10 we've seen the glory of God leave, well, here we've seen the glory of God so present that you don't need a sun or light. That his glory is so present there that, that it gives light. You see, the future is bright, not because it's orange, but because the glory of God will dwell with us. This is what we are heading for if we know Jesus. This is what we're heading for. Being so united to him. Being so united to him that I don't need a lamp in my office because because the lamb, Jesus, his glory is there, giving me even the light to to, to read a book. It's, It's amazing. And so if you're here, uh, if you're here, uh, and, um, and, and maybe you've been here for, for, for many years, uh, but I, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, is this your future? Is this your future? Uh, you see, uh, the Jews uh, back in John 2, uh, they've been around the temple loads. Uh, they knew how it worked. They probably knew the history uh, far better than I do. And yet they'd missed the one whom it was all about. I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking if you if you read the Bible a lot. I'm not asking I'm not asking any kind of Christian marker how often you're here, whether you come on or any of that. I'm asking I'm asking, do you know Christ? Is this your future? Are you excited about dwelling with Him? Maybe though you are. Maybe that's, that's wonderful. And if that's you, let me just ask you, what kind of a God are we seeing revealed in Christ here? We're seeing a God, aren't we, who throughout all of history has had his people rebel against him. Throughout all his history, he's pursued them, wanting to live amongst them. Throughout all history, he then sees people who rebel against him, and he says, I am willing to sacrifice my own sons so that they can come and dwell with me. Uh, He sees people who will believe in Christ, and even as believers in Christ, uh, will then so often slip into empty religion. And yet he still longs for them to dwell with him, uh, and for, in fact, them to dwell in him. How glorious is our God. Uh, What more could he give you? What more could he give to people who are any less worthy? And this is beautiful, isn't it? And so as we finish, I'm just going to give us just a moment of quiet. I want you to ask, are there areas of my life, uh, maybe areas of my Bible reading habits, maybe areas of my church attendance, areas of, 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 of good Christian things in my life that I'm doing, but I'm missing the point? I'm not coming to Christ. I'm coming to something else. And if that's not you, then ask, what more could my Savior have given me? Just 30 seconds or so, just to ask those questions.
Our Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that in him at last we have a dwelling place with God. Thank you that what we have now is simply a foretaste of the glory that we will enjoy for all eternity. Help us, Father, to leave here as those with a fresh savor of Christ upon us who long to contemplate his person. Amen.